Hey L2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Today's reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, Welcome to church. We had a big week in my family. Uh, We had uh, Zach and Janae had a little boy come into our family this week, so that was a big, it wrecked my schedule. Babies are really inconvenient. I try to tell you that all the time. Um, But it it really was a great, uh, great time for our family. Um, Welcome to church this morning. We're going to jump right in. Um, We've got an early kickoff for the Bronco game. I've got a lot to say, so we're going to get it all in here. Um, So anyhow, let's pray and uh, we're going to jump right in. Uh, Father, I would ask that, uh, particularly in this text, you would allow us to kind of step back and consider what was written here from a perspective of its relevance to our everyday lives. There are some deep things in this text, and and yet there are some things that should be really obvious. They should almost just jump off the page at us. And so we just commit this time to you. We pray and ask that it would be meaningful to us and honoring to you. And so to that end, we commit our time. For we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've titled this, this sermon, Joy in Difficulty. And what we've been trying to do throughout this series is to consider the fact that happiness and joy have far less to do with our external circumstances than we typically think. In fact, if we're ever going to have more happiness, the thing that we are striving for the most, um, we're going to have to have a change, a deep change on the inside. I don't think that there's another sermon in this series that is going to demonstrate that quite like these verses do. 
Um, if we're going to ever have joy and happiness, greater degrees of it in our life, um, we're going to have to change internally. We're going to have to know what those things are and how best to pursue them. And I think we're going to see that probably better than, like I said, any other place in this series. Um, as we consider the relationship between our joy and our difficulty today, we're going to be looking kind of at three things. We're going to look at the occurrence of those in these verses that you just heard. Um, we're also going to consider some research. This research today is not so contemporary. It's about 70 years old, but it, it points to what Paul is talking about, uh, I, I think, spectacularly clearly. And then lastly, we're going to look at Paul's example for some takeaways that really can be applied fairly easy to our lives. And so uh, we're, we're just going to jump right in. I, I want to start with showing you the joy and the difficulty that we see in these verses. Um, in this fourth large section of the book, we see another glimpse of Paul's joy. Um, and in this situation, his joy as well as his encour encouragements to them for their joy, they're discovered in a very complex discussion of what it was, he, what it was that Paul was facing. Uh, we kind of see the internal workings of Paul's thinking and his, his feelings as we, as we really look at this. Um, if we start with the joy, we look at that in verses 17 and 18, particularly in verse 17, it's stated explicitly. He says, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. And so it, it's stated overtly that in the midst of this, Paul, right in the center of this text, Paul is just saying, my joy hasn't gone. It isn't it, it, it's, it hasn't collapsed under this. Now, when he makes this statement that he's being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, which he appears to be cheerfully willing to do. Now, that is not an insignificant thing because what it's showing you is that there was a durability to Paul's joy. There was a durability to his commitment that in spite of all that he was facing, it hadn't abated. It hadn't fled away. Most of us, I think, we oftentimes find that the things that do make us happy are temporal. They're passing. Um, in, in psychology, they call that the hedonic treadmill, where you habitu things habituate. You get accustomed to it. It's almost exactly what a drug addict goes through when, when for the first time, he tries a drug and he'll be chasing that high forever. He finds himself two or three years later taking two to three times what he initially took and he never experiences the same thing. Our happiness is that very same way. But for some reason, Paul's hasn't abated at all. Um, his joy is shown to be anchored in the belief that his service of their faith was advancing the gospel in Philippi and that they actually were going to be able to make a difference in the city when he talks about them appearing as lights in a twisted, dark culture, he was talking about them actually having a mission that was changing the city. Now, what we see here is, is kind of interesting. In verses 12 and 13, we see the first of two kind of brief sections of instruction that are truly profound. Um, and this causes us to take a step back and you see the development of the context that would cause him to be so committed to their faith. And this first this first exhortation that we see in verse 12 and 13 is really an exhortation to an intensity of faith. 
Now, if you've ever gone through, like I have, seasons in which your faith seems almost impossible to hold on to, it seems like you're believing things that you don't know if you can believe them any longer. The doubts are just like waves washing over what you believe, and you can barely hold on. This would be something that Paul would say to you. You need to work out your salvation by fear and trembling. Now, there's a lot of debate about what he's exactly saying in that exhortation, but at the very least, you can hear in those words, you need to be applying yourself. You can't just expect to hold in a cavalier way, in a very casual way, a faith that you claim to believe without believing it deeply. Now, if you're not a Christian, either watching online or sitting in this room, this might be where you would say, well, this is the, the difficulty I have with, with Christianity because it seems at times to exhort us to just try harder. It seems to exhort us to just believe, have more faith in your faith, have more hope in your hope. But that's not at all what he's saying here when you look at it deeply. When he, when he says work out your salvation by fear and trembling, he's not talking about working for your salvation. He's talking about a group of people that were working with the faith that they had. And he said, you better take it seriously. And I think this comes fairly close to what Timothy Keller in The Reason for God, this is in the introduction, um, that he says you, you have to be willing to explore your doubt. You have to be willing to examine the things that are causing you difficulty because if, you're, if you don't, your faith will never survive a season of trial, nor will it survive the, the questions of an intelligent skeptic. In other words, your faith kind of gets hammered out over the course of your lifetime and it gets like a mile wide and an inch deep and you can't answer your own questions, much less the varying questions of the people that you live with, the people you work with, even your closest friends and family. And so there's something here when he makes this exhortation that is truly interesting. He closes it with something that, again, is startling. And because it's like the word for is in English, it's, it's in the word gar in the Hebrew or in the Greek, but it basically said because. You need to work out your salvation by fear and trembling because it's God. He is the energy at work inside of you. He's the one that's causing you to will according to his pleasure, and he's causing you to work according to his pleasure. And so you see he's pushing them on, kind of onto an aisle, uh, an island of intensity, and he is saying, you better be applying yourself, but you need to remember that it's God that's at work in you. He's the energy. He's the spirit that's at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so little by little, he was expecting them to work through it whatever they faced in their faith. Now, the next section of instruction that, again, he's just doing what he told them he was doing. He was building up their faith. And we see it in verses 14 to 16. And this exhortation is very interesting because he's talking about them being other-minded. In other words, he's saying there's something at stake here that's far beyond a casual purview. There's something at work here that you need, you need to be careful that you don't succumb to grumbling, which the idea of grumbling was murmuring in almost a gossipy manner. It was people that get together and they almost always are complaining. And he says, don't allow yourself to be like that, nor do, do you should keep yourself from disputing. And again, the, the, the idea of the disputing that he's talking about is 
It, this is the type of argument that arises when two people have different opinions. And he says, you need to be really careful not to allow yourself to just kind of be ground down in your faith to where you're always complaining and arguing with each other. But that's, it, that, doesn't, that exhortation doesn't appear in a vacuum. What it's connected to is so that others might be able to see who you really are. In other words, that's the blight that's going to cause your mission to be totally useless. It's in vain. You need to be able to work out your salvation by fear and trembling, but you have to keep yourself from this grumbling and, and arguing amongst yourselves because as you hold to the word, you're going to appear as luminaries, like the moon, like the stars, in a, in a culture, in a situation, a generation that has no other light but you. And so he's really exhorting them in this second section to, to be other-minded, to be considered to considering the fact that the city itself around them has no light but them. And so they need to take that seriously. And so the joy that we see here comes deeply seated in the fact that Paul knew that he made the Philippians better. He knew that there was something about his ministry that advanced the gospel in their lives and not only their lives throughout the whole entire city. Now, when you switch over to the difficulty that we see here, it's, it's really interesting because it's captured in a single verse in verse 27. And this verse is explaining the illness that Epaphrodites went through that almost killed him in 27a. And Paul views God's mercy in delivering Epaphrodites not just simply for his sake, but for Paul's sake. Now, there's a little clause here that I, I think it's easy to read in the English and just pass over it. He says, lest he have sorrow upon sorrow. And this is like saying the straw that broke the camel's back. Paul is saying, the difficulty I face is so advanced in all of my life, I basically don't know if I could have stood it. I don't know if I could have withheld held on to my faith if Epaphroditus had died, if he actually went away in death. And so this difficulty, this little statement, sorrow upon sorrows, is a statement that doesn't point to the illness that Epaphroditus went through. It, it points to the whole gambit of what he's facing. Now, for you and I, that, that would look like making kind of a list of all the things that we face. Now, as Christians, I would encourage you to be, to be more and more committed to really owning the difficulties that you face. And the, the reason is that so many in our culture today, even Christians that have pushed away from Christianity, they call them de-churched or de-converted, whatever you want to think about. But what they've done is they look at us and they're saying, it seems as if you're living in denial. It seems almost as if your hope in the future has caused you to turn loose of reality. And that's the way you talk. That's the way you sound. And you can't talk deeply about a broken heart because your husband cheated. You can't talk deeply about this trial that your faith brings because your, your little boy is sick. It doesn't seem like we can be honest about a financial reversal or a, a, a bad result on a health exam. It, it seems almost as if we're living in denial, but Paul, in this one little clause, admits that he was a frail human being. And he says, if Epaphras, Epaphroditus had died, I really don't know if I could have survived. 
And so we see the joy and the difficulty in this through, throughout these verses, I think. The two, both of these themes are predominant in what we've seen throughout this series thus far is that the difficulty that Paul was facing challenged him in virtually every part of his life. Yet his joy remained constant because it was coming from his deep sense of conviction that they needed him and that they were better with him alive than dead. Now, as I said earlier, the, the research that I'm going to show you today is 70 years old. In 1946, Viktor Frankl published his book that he wrote nine days after he was released. Um, from, he actually survived several Nazi death camps, and he released the book. We have one copy left on the table downstairs that is called Man's Search for Meaning, in which he wrote about all those experiences that he survived, including Auschwitz. He was a world-renowned neuroscience and psychiatrist, and the United States had recognized him, and they offered him a visa to, to leave Austria. And his, he, had, he would, was reading in the Bible the fourth commandment about, the fifth commandment, I'm sorry, about honoring your parents, and his parents were ailing. And so he let his visa lapse. And shortly after that, the whole entire family was, was taken by the Nazis, and they were put in these internment and death camps, and of which he went, to, he went to Auschwitz. By the time he was released, his whole family, including his pregnant wife, had died. And he captured all of this in nine days after the Allied forces freed him. And he made a statement that 70 years later is just now beginning to be confirmed by our research. He made this statement, he said... It is the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. We're just now, some of you don't even understand that yet, but our culture and science is just now beginning to understand exactly what he was at, getting at. The, pursuit of, the very pursuit of happiness that thwarts happiness. Now, he said this, he said, don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you're going to miss it. For success, like happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Now, when Martin Seligman started Positive Psychology, and he was the founder in 2008, he identified three kinds of happy. There was the pleasant happy, which is just the pursuit of immediate gratification. He said that it almost never lasts. And he said there's, there's this engaged kind of happy that comes from you discovering your signature gifts and reordering your life so that you could spend as much time in that zone, in that space as you can, so that you can experience uh, eudemic flow, which, is, uh, which is, is a term that it just he describes it as time-stopping. You're so good at that. You're so uh, capable that when you're in that place, it just seems like that's, your, that's the place you were born for. He said the third kind of meaning, so you have pleasant happy, you have engaged happy, and then you have meaningful happy. And the third one is the one that I think we see the most in Frankel's writing as well as in this text. He said that the last happy, this meaningful happiness, comes from you having an engaged life, knowing your signature gifts and employing them as often as you can. But here's the difference. The meaningful life is engaging them for something other than yourself. 
He said, when you have that, you're pleasant, happy. It's just like off the chart. When you do things, your hobbies, when you have a meaningful life, when you do engage in the pursuit of pleasure, your pleasure is just like unscripted. It's like Star Trek, boldly going where you've never gone before. And so there's something to this. And Frankel, 70 years ago, wrote about this. Now, years later, when Frankel was formulating his psychological model that he called logotherapy, he, he said this about finding the true meaning in life. Again, another profound statement. He said, one should not search for an abstract meaning of life. Everyone has his own specific vocation or mission in life to carry out a, co a concrete assignment, which demands fulfillment. Therein he cannot be replaced, nor can his life be repeated. Thus, everyone's task is as unique as is his specific opportunity to implement it. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life, he can only respond by being responsible. Thus, logotherapy sees in responsibleness the very essence of human existence. Now, it's hard for me to capture. I, many of you know I do a lot of work with the brain science lab down in, down in, uh, in Arizona. And I do business consulting and, and things like that. When you break down those statements, there's three things. That he said, the essence of your existence hangs in these three things. Number one is your calling. Your calling. A deep understanding of a specific per personal vocation and mission that demands fulfillment. In other words, do you have that? Could you right now write something down that says, this in my life demands my accountability. It demands fulfillment because it's mine. Besides calling, the second thing is it requires identity. Believing your life cannot be replaced or repeated. What did that mean? That there's no one like you. There's stuff that belongs to you that this church can't do. I can't do. You can't have people in your life and just send them to Russ for counseling. They're yours. They're your things. That sounds exactly like what Paul would write later to Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. You have your stuff, and nobody else can do it but you. And so it's calling, identity, and the last thing is action. This whole idea of responsibleness is very interesting because he said being responsible and again, he was, a, he, he was a, a man that was grounded in the, steeped in the Old Testament Scripture. And we don't know for sure what, he, what all that he believed about Jesus and everything else, but we know that he believed what the Bible was saying in the Old Testament. And he said you have to be willing to answer the questions that life is asking you every day. You need to be, just be present and responsible. And so calling, identity, and action... He said, the essence of your humanity will flow out of those three. And again, it's hard for me to convey to you how profound those findings have been over the years. Now, this last quote, I think, is the cherry on the top, or the key in the lock that makes everything he said work. Listen to what he says. He said, everything can be taken from you. Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing. The last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose 
one's own way, even though conditions such as lack of sleep, insufficient food, and various mental stresses may suggest that the inmates were bound to react in certain ways. In the final analysis, it becomes clear that the sort of person the prisoner became was the result of an inner decision and not the result of camp influences alone. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him mentally and spiritually. He may retain his human dignity even in a concentration camp. I think when you look at these verses that Paul penned, you find exactly what Frankel discovered. You find a deep internal decision that was grounded in his understanding of himself and his mission with them. And as long as he had that, his joy was not going to, like a bird, fly away. It was going to abide and survive. And so we see this correspondence between a profound understanding of, of inexplicable evil and death and difficulty that Frankel discovered it was exactly what Paul explained. Now, in this last section, I want us to consider briefly Paul's example. What is it that we can see that we can take away from that that might make a difference tomorrow, perhaps even today? I think the first thing that you see is the, the durability of true joy. As clearly as any other section in the book, Paul expresses the fact that he hadn't lost any of his joy. It hadn't been diminished, even in the slightest. In verse 17, he says, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul was not feeling sorry for himself. Now, I think we have to step back and own as Christians that this is, this is the exception that we hear today. Not just amongst Americans, but amongst Christian Americans. We, we don't see this resiliency, not very often. And I, I think a perfect example of what we do see most commonly is taken from Genesis 47 and verse 9. That there you have Jacob learning about the fact that his, his sons defrauded him. And they said that, that Joseph had been killed. And they brought back his multicolored garment. And they, he said, surely he's dead. And so for, for over 20 years, he believed that Joseph was dead. He's learned that Joseph is not only not dead, he's thriving. He's the ruler, literally, of the world at the time because he was second only to, the, to the Pharaoh, the emperor of Egypt. And in spite of him finding all of those things, in spite of Joseph sending to him to take care of their whole family and all the wagons, he brings him. And as soon as... Jacob sits down with Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks him about his life. Listen to what he says. It's not what we see in Paul's example. He says, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. That's not the example we see with Paul. Paul's joy was not diminished, not even in the least. And so we see there a sharp contrast recorded in Scripture, which typifies so much of what we see, people that are reduced to the very things that Paul was warning the Philippians about. He says, don't give in to your murmuring 
which is with this gossipy complaining. Don't give in to that. And don't give in to the, the petty disputes amongst you. There's too much at stake. There's a city out there that is lost without you. So for the sake of them, keep yourself engaged. For the sake of them, pursue your faith with all that's in you. And so we see the durability of his joy from his example. And secondly, we see the sacrificial service for others. It keeps coming out like a, a needle coming through the garment over and over in a hymn. And his service to the Philippians was sacrificial. It was very effective, though. And even after all that he experienced in facing the uncertainty of the future, he says, I don't know how it's going to turn out for me which tells you he, he had no idea. There wasn't a writing on the cell wall that caused him to believe that he was going to release. He had a sense that he was going to be released, but in the end of the day, he said, I, I, don't, I don't know. I really don't know how it's going to turn out with me. Hopefully, I'll be able to come to you, but I don't know. But in spite of that, he persists in his sacrificial service to them in the form of this letter. And so when he writes to them, he says, I, I want you to apply yourself sincerely with all all your might. And so for, for some of us, might, that might sound like a father coming alongside or a, a close friend that, or family member that comes alongside us and said, I don't know how long you're going to hesitate between these ideas you claim to believe. It seems like you're half in, but you're half out all the time. And so when he tells them you need to work out your own salvation by fear and trembling, he says you need to be all in. And then when he says, stop this grumbling, stop this disputing, he's causing them to be mindful of other people to say, for their sake, I can shut up. For their sake, I can stop complaining and finding fault with what God is requiring of me because if I hold fast to the word, I will actually appear as a light to a very dark city. And so we see in this context that true joy can endure. But it only endures after a commitment to something bigger than yourself. And so I would simply close with this, that joy can be experienced in the midst of difficulty, even inexplicable difficulty. The type of difficulty that causes you to perceive that I didn't even imagine this being that bad. Even in the midst of that, you can have joy. But you're never going to have it directly. Instead, you're going to have it as a result of believing who God made you to be, what he's called you to do, and the fact that his spirit is the very energy at work in you to want the right things and to accomplish the right things. You see, there's little wonder that Paul couldn't give up because he believed that God was in it. I had an old friend for a long time that used to tell me, if God's in it, you need to act like he's in it. And I can't tell you how many times his words have kind of corrected my thinking. When I was prone to grumbling, when I was prone to arguing, if God is in it, act like he's in it. Let me take a couple questions we'll be done. Okay, well, there we are. Is there any contradiction between the seemingly active work out your salvation of verse 12 and the seemingly passive because God works in you of verse 13? 
I, I believe that there's a tension in that. That, that you, 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 Paul was the one that wrote that 13th verse. And he said, it's God that's at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. But he wrote a few years earlier to Corinth that, that he says, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Lest after I preach to others, I should be disqualified. And he, he wasn't denying God's active involvement in his life. He was just recognizing his own responsibility and engaging it. And so many of you have talked to me over the, over the last couple of weeks about the difficulty that you might have with, with, with God's sovereignty, him being in control of all things. In, in Ephesians 1.11, it says that he works all things according to the purpose of his will. And he wrote to Colossae in Colossians 1 and verse 16, he says, that in Jesus, everything was created. In the next verse, in verse 17, he said, in him it's all held together. Which means what Herman Boving said, you live in a perfect world. That's hard. Now, the way that that meets us and the way that we should pray is not, well, case ras ra, whatever's going to be is going to be. Because there's too many exhortations in Scripture that says you need to pray. You, as a child, need to ask God. You need to make your requests be made known to Him. And so the, there's a sense in which the Scripture has these tensions in it, and this is one of them. This question captures this very well. Is that it's like there's a, there's a handle here with a rope that goes up through a pulley above my head, and then it comes down in this handle. And every time I pull on this one, I feel the tension in this one. And what Paul did is mash those two together right here. Work out your salvation as if everything in the world depends on you. But remember, it's him that's at work in you. He is the energy or the spirit that's at work in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. We can't dismiss that. And there's a reason that he pushed those two together. But you see, that is where many of you are. You're praying for your friends. You're praying for children. You're praying for spouses. And you're asking God that he would do as you would ask but you're willing to do that humbly because you're approaching the God of all of creation. And we do that humbly. I hope that helped. Next question. Relating to Epaphroditus' illness by means of God's mercy, what if healing doesn't come? That's another good question. How do you accept the providence of God when it doesn't go your way? This is, again, where I would appeal to a tweet that I recently saw from Tim Keller. He said, if, if, if you don't pray to a God that could do differently than you ask, maybe your God is too small. In other words, if your prayer puts him in debt to you, maybe he's become your servant instead of you being his servant. See, God has every right in the world to require things of us that we, we don't immediately want. And this is where Jesus' prayer in the garden where he's sweating drops of blood makes, it, it speaks so deeply to my own humanity that Jesus himself can say, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but it's not my will, but yours be done. And so whether that's laying a, a loved one in the ground, whether that's moving away because you're losing your house, whether that's facing a boss that, you can't hardly stand or losing your job, you're able to say, I, I know in spite of this that my God is in control. And the scripture requires us to hold those, that he's never, he's, he's never been stumped 
by the providence of the world. We can trust him through it, through every bit of it. And I, I, I hope that kind of helps, but there's something in it that sometimes God just requires us to bow our knee. There's times that he does things that are inexplicable, just like what Frankel went through. And there's time that he expects you to just bow your knee and trust him. That's all we can do. Last question. If our joy is not truly durable, does it follow that our blank? That our faith is deficient? As just a fellow fallen sinner, I would say that would be a terrible thing to conclude. Several years ago, I had a young man come to my office, and he, had, he was attending a very charismatic church in East Denver. And his father, both his father and his mother were, prof, they were well-known pediatric uh, or orthopedic surgeons. And his dad was dying of cancer. And a friend of his had sent him for counseling, and he said, can you teach me how to pray? And I said, well, I'd be happy to help you. Why? He said, my father's dying, and I need to know how to pray before he dies. And I said, I hope you get this figured out. He said, what do you mean? I said, what you just explained to me is that you put this whole thing on you, and I don't think it, it belongs on you. I said, you need to be diligent in learning how to pray and diligent in the execution of your prayer, but you, you can't con control the outcome of this. And you see, this is very similar to this, to say, okay, if I don't have joy, my faith just is simply deficient. That's possible. So the answer to this is, well, maybe. Maybe. The whole purpose of this series has been to try to show you some things that maybe you didn't think about in this research. And when you listen to Scripture, maybe you're going to learn something that, that you've tried to pursue joy directly, and you've just wasted your life pursuing it directly. And so the next car that you're going to get, the next city you're going to move to, the next job that you're going to get, or the next relationship you're going to get into, you're beginning to realize now your eyes are being opened up and you know it's going to be the same as the previous ones. And you're going to need to repent and change. Now, if that is what God is showing you and you refuse to do that, can you honestly expect him to give you joy if you don't listen to him? So there's a side to this where we have to be able to say, if you're, if, if you're lacking joy, you need to trust God, and you, you need to obey Him. And on the other hand, some of you might be lacking joy simply because you haven't done any of that. And the return of your joy and your happiness is directly correlated to you obeying. And so I can't tell you which it is. After that long explanation, it could be either one, and I don't know. But this is where I would end with what my friend used to say. If the Lord is in this, act like it. Trust him. If you, you don't know what it is, then trust him. Ask him to show you. And I believe he's very gracious in revealing to us. Sometimes in the quietness of the moments that are just lying ahead of us in communion, where we're examining ourselves, we're asking God, I want you to examine my own heart because there's parts of it that I can't even understand. Help me to know it deeply that I might be right with you. So that's all I have.
Good questions today. What we're going to do in the next few moments is we're going to take communion, and it's, these are just symbols. There's something that happens in this room and in every room where Christians take communion together. There's a presence of God that we expect to change us. It's not just ingesting a piece of bread and dipped in wine. It's us aligning ourselves again with the essence of our faith, a broken body given up for us and blood that was shed on our behalf. And by doing that, we, we tell each other in a public way, that's me. In the end of my life, that's the definition of who I am. If you take everything away from me, that's what I'll hold on to. And it's a decision. Now, before you take this, the Bible says you should examine yourself, which means a, a few moments in which you're able to say, God, I, I think this is right, and for that I'm so grateful. But this isn't what it should be. Help me. And in that spirit, we take this. And if you're not a Christian, obviously those are two things that you don't want to convey to people because those are simply not true. But if you are, I pray that you would trust God to move in your heart. Let's pray. Father, I, I would hope I've moved through a lot, a big section of this centerpiece of this letter. I, I hope you would give us this takeaway of just what it was that made Paul's heart beat with joy. What caused him to know that my joy hasn't diminished at all. I'm sitting here in chains in Rome not knowing whether I'll live it or die. But in the end of the day, I'm totally good. Father, we've seen that that only comes from durable joy. It comes from a sacrificial commitment to the service of something bigger than ourselves. And I can't help but believe that that very essence of the gospel was communicated to us so many times in our life, certainly in Frankel's work. I pray you would help us to think deeply about that for the next few moments. Uh, and as we would partake of communion, I pray that your spirit would minister to us intensely, personally, and cause us to know that you're in this together with us. We thank you for these things. We commit, it, commit them to you in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com.